Uh, there's one of these cool uh, graphics up here. Heather makes these, as I said before. Uh, we like this title, The Quiet Revolution, because we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And it was a talk that's given by Jesus about 2,000 years ago. Probably, probably a summary of a series of talks that were given by him that have been condensed down into one, uh, one long written passage for us. And uh, they're not bombastic. He's not some uh, demagogue in a, a rally pronouncing at the full volume to as many as will listen. He's gathered around those who will hear what God has to say and then he is teaching them. And actually his words, given in that quiet context up on the top of a hill, have then rippled out and changed the world. And actually there's a lesson for that. This isn't what I'm talking about today. But it strikes me as a lesson for that, particularly because it's great that there's some of our younger members are with us to think about this today. Your life doesn't have to be a great big firework bang to have a massive impact on the world. We don't need to be a superstar, a a Jeremy Corbyn or a Theresa May or uh, a a great singer or a prominent person to have a huge impact on the world. Jesus was almost unknown, certainly outside his little area. When When he achieved some national fame, he was executed for it. And yet this talk that he gave to a few people up on a hillside has changed the world. And actually your life can do that. If you dedicate your life to loving God and loving others and serving the people around you where you are, you will find that it has ripples that you can never see coming. I remember hearing one of the best talks I've ever heard was by a guy called Carter Conman, who unsurprisingly with that name is uh, from North America. Uh, He's actually from Canada. And he now pastors a 5,000 person church up thereabouts in New York City, David Wilkerson's old church. He's hugely influential all around the world. Sold millions of books. He tells the story of the one person who converted him, who shared Jesus' love with him when he was uh, in a complete mess in his life. And said to him, actually, Carter, you know, Jesus loves you and you've got to sort your life out and God will come and make you a new person. And so that, he was the only person that person ever converted to the gospel. Right? Just a tiny little ripple. Tiny little pebble thrown into the sea. And so that, that ripple has got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So effectively, that one person converted Carl Conlon, who has then shared God's love with millions. And so I imagine that person, that, uh, that little old lady it was, I mean, he paints this amazing picture in his talk of how you get to heaven and uh, Jesus is handing out honours and there's all these amazing preachers and pastors and they're standing there looking around to see who's going to be at the front of the line. He said, I think she's going to be there. Because she did one faithful thing. Share God's love with me. By God's grace, I was converted. By God's grace, I've converted millions. And so she's converted millions. What I'm trying to say is, The loud, bombastic superstars are not the people who change the world. The people who change the world are the ones who dedicate themselves to loving God and loving others. So we started a series of talks thinking about what this looks like. About the most influential talk that anyone's ever given. I don't know what you 
expect when you think about a lesson on how to live, right? The Sermon on the Mount is 80% about how God wants us to live, how he wants us to treat each other. And I suppose when I think about what a religious person, a great religious leader would say when he was wanting to teach people how to treat each other, I imagine that he would start with a list of rules. I mean, I guess that's what we think about, isn't it, right? You imagine that Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and you start with, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. Because that's what religion is about, isn't it? It's about curbing behaviour with rules. And yet, Jesus doesn't do that at all. I wonder why we think of it that way. Depending on our background, you might be expecting a list of the seven deadly sins. I can't list them for you, it's not my tradition. Presumably followed by a list of seven other less deadly sins, I don't know. Mildly deadly sins. Painful sins. Then perhaps a set of instructions about what we must do in order to add to what we must avoid. That's how we think about religion, it's how we think about ethics, right? That that someone's going to give us a set of rules, it's like being at school. There are rules. God has his own rules, right? Don't run in the corridors. Don't murder people. You know, they're both the same sort of thing. They're both do nots. I wonder if that's how we think about the world, whether the world can be divided up into rules. Do this and don't do that. In this view, sin is breaking a rule. It's breaking something God said, it's doing something God said not to do and not doing something he said to do, right? What we need to do then, in this view of the world, is learn to be good. By learning what the rules are, we work out what the rules are, and then we do that. That's actually how most of the world operates. Um, If you are not a person who's particularly um, uh, au fait with social media, then forgive me this, but there there are rules for how, if you want to be accepted on social media, you ought to present yourself. There are certain opinions you might express and certain opinions you can't express. Every group has them. You have to work out what they are if you want to be accepted by this group. It's how the world runs. It says those who are virtuous, those who are good, are those who keep the rules. Those who are bad, those who are outcast, are the ones who break the rules. And I can understand why people have the impression that that's what religion teaches. That is what a lot of religion teaches. It might be how you imagine Christianity, that it's basically about someone saying... Do this and don't do that. There are an awful lot of problems with this way of seeing the world, right? And if you think about them in any context, not just religion, in any context, they become obvious. They promote pride in those who think they keep the rules, I'm alright, and despair in those who know that they haven't and can't. How can I ever be good enough because I can't do what you want me to do? They prompt us to construct hierarchies of wrongdoing. What does that mean? It means that we have some people who are very, very good and some people who are very, very bad and the wrong things the good people do are not really that wrong and the the good things the bad people do are not really that good. Okay, so because you're... uh, Let's pick something that is obviously really bad. Because you're a racist, that's really bad, you're right down at the bottom, but because I am, I don't know, unkind and spiteful in my words, that's not really bad, at least I'm not a racist, so you're down here and I'm up here. Now, being spiteful is sort of bad, but it's sort of fun. Being a racist, now that's really bad. 
So we find a way to excuse ourselves, to say we're all right, but you're not all right. And that in turn encourages us to condemn a limited set of actions and to permit everything else. So as long as I'm not a racist, for example, everything else is fine. No matter how many people I hurt with my words. It actually became a huge problem when I was a lawyer. There is a, there is a problem in sentencing in courts that's come about because of this attitude. Which is that two people can be accused of exactly the same action and depending upon who they did it to irrespective of the reason they did it they get different sentences now to some extent that's understandable and justifiable but it it throws up curious cases where it's not obvious that something just is happening two people hit each other in the bar they're in a fist fight with each other and they're treated differently why? because we've set up a hierarchy All of these are problems with this view, right? You may have followed that, you may not, it doesn't matter. The biggest problem is that it's not true, right? That's the biggest problem. It just isn't true in what it teaches about people, about life. And it isn't true in reflecting what Jesus taught. Jesus didn't teach, here's a list of rules, everything else is okay, and if you break these rules, you're totally beyond the path, beyond the path. Now, every week I give a a summary of the big idea we're going to look at. Here is this week's. We don't need more rules. You don't need more rules. What we need is our souls healed. (coughs) And Jesus will do that if we trust him. We don't need more rules. What we need is our souls healed. And Jesus will do that if we trust him. We don't need more rules. What we need is healing. And Jesus will do that if we trust him. So I'm going to read now. This is from uh, the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most influential talk ever given. It's a summary of Jesus' teaching about what it means to live in God's kingdom. I just want to say something about language. Jesus occasionally says the kingdom of heaven in Matthew and the kingdom of God elsewhere. They are interchangeable, right? For Jews, sometimes certain, certain religious groups wouldn't say the word God. So you would translate it sometimes kingdom of God, sometimes kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means the place where God is and he reigns. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the word of God. So when Jesus comes to teach about the kingdom of heaven, the place where God is, 
and he, where he reigns, where he's in charge, he doesn't start with a list of good actions and bad actions. He doesn't start with a list of don't run in the corridors and do do your homework. He starts with the heart, with who we are. Almost all of these eight sayings refer to the character or heart condition of the hero. The one that's different is the last one, and that because that describes how people respond, how other people respond. The qualities Jesus describes in the rest of this talk, and if you haven't read it, I really commend sitting down and reading it, because it's an extraordinary manifesto. For someone who lived 2,000 years ago, describing a world in which hatred is banished from the human heart, in which men and women don't treat each other as objects to be used, but people to be cherished and committed to, in which hypocrisy doesn't happen, is an extraordinary vision of the world as it could be. These qualities that Jesus describes will inevitably be reflected in how we behave. And that's part of what Jesus deals with in the subsequent chapters. But it starts from within. You see, Jesus has this view of the world that humanity, that people, are, have a problem. That we have a problem. And I think that's fairly easy to justify, right? We have a problem, you can see it in global warming. Okay? I'm not here to pronounce on the science of global warming, but I think almost everybody accepts that there is a human element to the planet warming up. We have a problem, right? We take and use stuff, we use it to such an extent that we destroy the world around us. There is uh, the problem of greed. There is enormous wealth in the world, there is more than enough food produced in the world to feed everyone in the world, and yet we don't. We have people who are very, very hungry. There is the problem of selfishness. And I could go on and on and on. At the beginning of the uh, this service, we looked at two, two sets of pictures, one group of people who were very sad and one group who were very happy. It would only take me five minutes talking to you to find a time in the last year when someone had made you very sad. And probably if we sat it for another hour, we might find a time when you had made somebody else very sad. And the same is definitely true with me, except it's easy to find out with me. Right? Humanity has a problem, and what is the problem? Well, Jesus says that the problem isn't that we break a defined set of rules. That there's a set of rules that we could keep, but we, keep, we break them. And if only we tried harder to keep them, then we would be fine. Sin, he says, isn't fundamentally a question of being a rule breaker, but being sick in our hearts. We have soul sickness. We do do bad things. But we do them because there's a problem with our hearts, with our characters, the way we are. As a contemporary uh, author, uh, called Francis Spufford, and I've cleaned up his language a little bit. He writes, for, he writes for people who like robust language. But he describes this in a really good and vivid way. He says there's a human propensity to mess things up. A human propensity to mess things up. That means that we tend to break stuff, relationships, the world. And we tend to break it because we like it, keeping it for ourselves, usually. 
usually through self-centeredness, selfishness and pride. Sin is soul sickness. Now I'm not saying there isn't a place for rules. Obeying a set of rules might treat the symptoms of this sickness. It might prevent us from infecting others by keeping us away from them. That's why we have laws, right? Laws are important. It's important that schools have rules because we know that the human tendency towards selfishness and pride and anger produces people who hit other people. And so there is important that we have rules that when that happens, they're removed from those other people. The same is true of the adult world, right? We have laws that the human propensity to selfishness means that we drive our cars too fast because it's more important that we get where we're going than it is that other people are safe, right? I speed fundamentally because I'm selfish. So we have rules, which is if we find you doing that, it's too dangerous to have you around other people, so we stop you driving. You keep on doing it. That's why laws are important, but they don't solve the problem. But the problem with the boy who punches people at school isn't that he's too close to other people, it's that he likes punching people. The problem with me driving my car too fast isn't that I am uh, driving a too powerful car, it's that I'm so selfish that I can't understand that other road users' safety is more important than where I'm going. It's soul sickness. So that's why Jesus begins with this list. Not with a list of do's and don'ts, but with a description of a heart that's being healed. Put it back up. They're all qualities. It's a description, a journey of a heart that's being changed, being made whole again. This also explains, for those who are wondering why he does this, Jesus equates anger and hatred with murder. Now I studied law for four years, practiced it for six more, depending on how you count. I can tell you straight up now, anger and hatred are not equivalent to murder, right? If I were to bring you up before a crown court and say, you, young man, were really angry towards that lady, that is not going to get you the same sentence as saying you stabbed her in the face. It's just not. So why does Jesus do it? He does it because he says that murder flows from a problem within our own hearts. A problem that many of us experience. Jesus is more concerned with healing that problem than he is with curbing the behaviour. He's more concerned with healing the spiritual sickness than just preventing it being expressed in action. So these sayings at the start of the sermon describe a journey that the heart takes, a transformation of the soul, from the brokenness that naturally characterises all of us, to the wholeness God desires from us. It's, if you like, the doctor's prescription for healing a broken heart. And we'll look at detail at this process over the next few weeks, but I want to look at the big picture before we start. Actually, what I found when I'm doing Alpha, I'm doing courses with people who haven't um, engaged with Christianity before is that this often comes up because people carry an enormous sense of guilt because they feel like they've broken this set of rules and they can't understand why that set of rules was set out and this set of rules wasn't set out so why is it that I feel condemned and my neighbour who did this doesn't and one of the most healing things I've been able to say in Alpha is actually that's not how God sees it at all God sees us all as fundamentally sick in our souls. 
and needed healing. Let's look at the big picture then. The first is that healing is a progression. To use an intensely irritating phrase, it's a journey. You can see this in the sayings themselves. Right, they build on one another. So for example, uh, you begin with blessed are the merciful, uh, sorry, begin with blessed are the poor in spirit. People who are humble and know they need help. By number four, those people actually know what is right. See, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They're not just humble now, they want to do what's right. Number eight, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, now they're actually doing what's right. And suffering as a result. Right, there's a journey. Your spiritual life is a journey. It should be progressing. You should be growing. We ought to be moving forward. We ought to be becoming more and more like Jesus. Actually, the main reason we get together in groups in midweek. It's nice to meet other friends. It's great to form deep relationships. But mainly we do it because we want to keep on growing. Growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus. Yeah, well, there's a progress in this. You never move on from one to the other and leave the other one behind. So you don't say, no, I've now achieved peak mercy, so now I can move on to being pure in heart. Kind of all grows at the same time. Second, the, the journey begins and ends with God. See it at verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's another way of saying The presence and rule of God is with those who are humble. Do you know that you're not good enough? Then you are exactly the sort of person that God can bring his kingdom to. Yet in verse 8, we're told the same of those who are treated badly because they do what's right. Now what's going on here? Is it with the person in verse 1 or the person in verse 8? Is it with the person at the beginning of the process or is God with the person at the end of the process? I don't get it. Actually, this is all the ways it's Christianity through and through. Everything in Christian thought begins with God. Everything starts with God. And everything leads to God. Everything must start with God. And everything must lead to God. Without God's grace, without the presence of God's spirit, we're powerless to change ourselves. That's why people don't really change. They curb their actions, they learn not to do bad things, but deep down they don't change their hearts. They can't. Right? I'm going to speak as a, a, a man of many years in court. Let me, let me assure you that most people who've learned to do bad stuff don't fundamentally change. You can punish them as much as you like, they don't. And actually, we can say, aren't they bad? The answer is no, not really. They're just like the rest of us. One of the biggest things that um, Heather learned when she was representing young people who'd grown up in South East London in gangs is that if she had grown up in the same circumstances, she too would have ended up in court. Why? Because the sickness of soul is the same. But she happened to grow up in leafy Buckinghamshire and go to a really nice school... And they happened to grow up on a council estate in Newham and had to carry a knife for fear of their lives. 
It's not to do with looking down on these people, it's to do with recognising that we all need the grace of God. Without God's grace, the empowering presence of his spirit, we're powerless to change ourselves. We're stuck, we can't heal our own hearts. The moment we accept that, we put our trust in Jesus' work for us and ask God for mercy and a new start. We receive the kingdom of heaven. If you know that you, and I'm speaking part of the recording as well, if you know that you need healing, the moment you come and say to Jesus, actually, I know that I need healing and I want to be healed and I trust that you can do it. He forgives you, he comes in, God counts all the badness that you've done as Jesus is. And Jesus says, now I want you to have all the good credit that I've got. My sons are full sometimes of the merits, various merit systems they have in school. I mean, I honestly have lost. There's like four or five going on in parallel, it seems to me. There's house points, there's merit points, there's some sort of star system with clouds and rain, although that might be Abbey. Honestly, can't understand it. Then there's like gold badges you can award. It's as if God says... Jesus has earned every merit point you could possibly ever earn, right? He was so humble that he was God and made himself poor and despised. Merit point. He was so loving that he went around and gave his whole life to healing the sick. Merit point. He was so gracious that people who were despised by everyone else came and found him to be their friend. Merit point. He was so fearless that he stood up to the Roman governor of Israel. We kind of gloss over that, that Jesus stands up to the Roman governor of Israel. He stood up to the representative of the single biggest military power in the world. Stood in front of him and said, you can kill me if you want. You wouldn't have any power over me if God didn't uh, give it to you. He's that, that brave, merit point. He's so powerful that he healed the sick, merit point. They just step up and 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 up all the way to heaven. Perfect, perfection. A billion merit points. So good that they want to mount a statue of his head on the top of the school so that all the other children can look around and see this one boy who achieved perfection in his conduct. And he then says to, 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 to us, and we're coming on and saying, look, God, this is what being poor in spirit is. He's coming and saying, God, look, I haven't earned a single one. Even the good stuff I've done, I know it doesn't make up for the bad stuff. I know that I treat people badly. I know that I'm proud. I know that I, I bully people sometimes. I know that I'm cruel. I know I get angry with people, with my kids or with my mum and dad. I, I know that I speak unkindly about people behind their back. I, I know. I know. I get that I'm sick. Please forgive me and heal me. And Jesus says, right, right, you see this power of merit, pile of merit points that goes all the way to the sky that's got my head on a plinth outside the school office so that everyone can uh, see how good I was and aspire to be like me. You can have them. And all of your detentions and all of your time getting sent to see your head teacher, I'll have that. And I'll do your detentions for you and you can have my merit points. To use a, a different analogy, imagine someone who's got no money at all, owes money to everyone going, and he turns around to his rich friend and says, rich friend, you have more money than I can even imagine. Please can you help me out? He says, I can do better than that. I'll take all your debts, I will pay them, and you can have more money than you can ever imagine. 
That's what Jesus does for us. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is it that God owns? Everything. Where is it that God reigns? Everywhere. He says, here, have my kingdom. In this sense, if you put your trust in Jesus, you have been saved. You have been saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, if God left it there, we would be forgiven but unchanged, right? So, this is a clip I found. When I was growing up, one of the things I liked to do was to watch Grand Designs with my dad. You've not seen Grand Designs? You're missing out. It's all about renovating houses, but it's really about this guy, Kevin MacLeod. Everyone loves him. And uh, this is a house that was near me, and I, it, it's a uh, renovation of a castle, right? These people renovate a castle, right? So, our lives become broken. They, become, they fall into disrepair. Right? We, we develop bad habits. We treat people unkindly. We act selfishly. As I say, if you don't think you do that, wonderful. Maybe you're the perfect exception. Or maybe you're kidding yourself. One of the two. This is what this castle looked like. Okay? And I, I, I kind of feel like this represents me. And I like it because this is where I grew up. The Vale of Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire is a great rolling open landscape. It is splendidly dotted with grand country estates from another age. <coughs> Just the right hunting ground for an architectural folly. <laughs> what a sight. It may have the shape of an ancient Tudor tower, but this mini castle wasn't built for defence. It was, in fact, built 250 years ago to house a gentleman's fossil collection. <laughs> of course, now it's become something of a relic itself. I mean, it is a building that doesn't want to stand up anymore. It just wants to sort of fall over in two big halves. But it's not going to. Because I think its owners are going to try and repair it. Right. By the way, I grew up in a village. This isn't a village. Okay, I've been wanting to get off my chest for six years. Village, you have fields around your village. Okay, if you, if you have to define where you move into the next town by a railway bridge, it's not a village. Anyway, this castle is totally in disrepair. It's fallen into disuse because, I mean, it's not really a castle, but it's shaped to look like a castle, because it broke. Bits of it have broken. And as they've broken, other bits of it have broken, other bits of it have broken. I don't know if you noticed when we watched the little clip, they've had to put fencing around it now to keep people away from it because it's now dangerous to other people. And this is what our lives become. Naturally speaking, if we're left to our own devices, we start to look out for ourselves and eventually we become toxic to other people. Some of us are very good at hiding it. And in the end, we have to put up fences around our hearts, around who we really are, to protect other people. You know, if, you, if it gets really bad and you get sent to prison, there are literal fences. 
but it might be that they are just fences that we erect of a smile or a kind word to one person so they don't think we're the sort of person who says unkind words to other people. It might be the person who slams on their brakes so they slow down going past the speed camera so that no one thinks they're the type of person who's so selfish they speak. I had to get back here quickly this morning. I'm trying to salve my conscience. <laughs> and when I say that, I give my uh, example of God forgiving us when we say, yeah, I'm sorry, I want a new start. It can be a little bit like the tower's just left there. So it's not going to be knocked down. It's been forgiven. It's not going to be demolished but it's still broken inside it's still a wreck you see the thing is that God isn't in the business of leaving our lives as ruins or wrecks he's not in the business of leaving us as we are so what God does is he moves in and little by little room by room he starts to rebuild the house Until it's beautiful, until our lives are beautiful, until they can be used to bless other people. That's the way God's Spirit comes and works in us and fixes our hearts. That instead of pride and hardness towards other people, looking out for ourselves, He makes us humble and gives us compassion. Instead of being more interested in our own lives and other people's lives, He shows us our failings. And the, thing, the injustices of the world, the things that are wrong with the world, and gives us a passion for putting them right. In other words, he makes us like Jesus. We come to share his nature. We're being saved. Now, it's not just that God takes us and makes us back to what we were. This is what the castle looked like in the end. This is why it's such a perfect illustration. In the beginning, this castle was all right. It was used for housing fossils. But it wasn't much good to, good to anybody else. This is what it became when someone came in and renovated it. It is a, a beautiful miniature castle. This folly has sprung alive again. Its windows glint. Its walls are brighter, battered and bruised with time, but now delicately repaired with lime water. And it has a new grand staircase and a new birthday. Right? If you go online, you can Google this. Grand Designs Castle in Aylesbury. And it, you can see inside. God wants to take our lives, take our hearts and heal them so that he puts us back together. In life there's always more work to be done, but one day when we meet him face to face, we will see Jesus in all his compassion and justice, in all his zeal and kindness. And then, and this is the most amazing thing, we'll look at ourselves and realise that that's us too. We'll look at Jesus and say, you were amazing. And he will say, well, look down at yourself, because I've made you like me. We will be saved. I want to ask two questions as we close. First of all, have you set out on this journey? You're never too young or too old. It starts with recognising that our hearts need to be healed. 
and our failures need to be forgiven. The first step towards finding a cure is to entrust yourself to a doctor. If I could put it this way, that building was never going to get rebuilt while everyone pretended it was fine. As long as everyone said, oh, it's great. A bit more fencing around the edge, the kids don't play near it. Never got fixed. Put your trust in Jesus. Accept you need help and get baptised and you will receive the Holy Spirit. God himself will come, forgive you and begin to heal your soul. Maybe you started this journey a long time ago though. I want to ask whether you're still moving along the road. Some of us get tired. Tired of the fight, I recognise that. Tired of the road, tired of the transformation, tired of loving others. Are you still pursuing the character of Christ? Are you still seeking ever more to show mercy? To desire righteousness, to challenge injustice? To become like Jesus? In some ways that's a, a harder question to answer. If you know you've stopped moving forward, then it's time to start up again. God's compassion never fails. Tell him about it. He already knows, so you might as well. Ask forgiveness and start walking again. One way of doing that is to come to a life group. You see, the journey is easier when you have friends to travel with. We don't need more rules. We need our souls healed. Jesus will do that if we trust him. I'm just going to sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Listen to some music. You can look at some pictures if you want. And then we're going to sing a last song. And I'm going to pray for us. I, uh, just while we were praying, uh, had a very strong picture on mind of a long road and sat on the side of the road was a little girl and hunched over uh, crying because she'd fallen and I could see that her knees were grazed and she was sat there for a while and I walked this man and just held out his hand and said it's time to get up and start walking again and he picked her up and walked off down the road. I just sense that that's God saying to some, someone uh, listening that, that you've fallen over and you've been badly hurt and you've wept and God has allowed you time to weep but there comes a time when it's important to get up and start walking again and he wants to hold your hand while you do it. I just want to, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for anyone who is sensing that they want to respond for the first time to this. Father God, I want to thank you that you promise that if we come to you and we say, I know that I need help, please change me. I trust Jesus, that you forgive us immediately. You're like that uh, genius who gives away all of his merit points, or that rich man who gives away all of his money. and takes on all our detentions or our debts. I just want to pray, Father, that you would forgive us 
that you would accept us. We know we need your help. If you've never prayed this prayer before, I'm going to pray a prayer and you can make it your own quietly in your heart. Father God, thank you that you love me so much that you would give me everything. Thank you that you love me so much that you would die for me. I know I need your help and your forgiveness. Please forgive me and give me a new start. Amen. And I just want to pray for anyone who senses that they want to get up again. Lord, you know that the journey is hard and that we often fall down. And we just want to pray, Lord, would you pick us up? Lord, dry our eyes. Lord, we find it hard to walk, but with you we can keep on going. And we want to pray, Lord, that you would take us forward. Make us like Jesus. Amen.